Everybody else, if you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, just to let you know what's coming. So last week, as you're probably aware, we finished a series on the book of Colossians and Philemon. So that was, we finished a series last week. And what we regularly do as a church is, is we, 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 we are going through a book of the Bible and we just go sort of, you know, passage after passage, just um, going through just expository preaching of just what, what is, what is, God speaking to his people through this passage. And so we go through passage by passage, book by book uh, at a time. So last week we just finished Colossians and Philemon. Next week we're going to start the book of, uh, we're going to start the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Um, so it's a series called Citizen Exiles that I am um, particularly excited about. We'll get more into next week why we are doing this series at this time, though it's one of these series that I really just think as we begin to study God's word together, and he speaks to us through his word, I think it's just going to become obvious what, why he is giving us these books to study at, at this time. Um, but I really think we have much in common with, with the people who situationally were in, that we read about in these books at, the, at this time, that they found themselves as exiles from their true and permanent home, that they were, that they were not living in their permanent home, and they were living in a culture that was opposed to their values, and yet, so as they were in this place that was opposed to their values, they were called to be this city within the larger city. Um, so, but they weren't called to be a city sort of disconnected from the larger city that was around them, but they were called to be the city within the city, but laboring for the good of the bigger city that they were in. So they were called sort of to help build two cities, one, the, the city of, of the people of God that they were a part of, but then also called to labor to help serve the broader city that they were in. And so... Um, and, and they just trusted God as, as they fought uh, oftentimes opposition, as, as they sort of were, were in, in a culture that was largely opposed to their values, the way that they leaned in to trust God and to both build their, their, the city of the people of God, but also serve to labor the, the larger city. So uh, I'm excited about that. I just think we have as a church so much in common with the people uh, who were then. So don't know exact dates. Not everything's been planned out yet, but this is going to roughly be our 2022 series is are going through th these three books. So I think we're going to finish in 2022, but you know, we might be pushing December by the time I uh, get done. Um, so next week, very creatively, we're going to be starting with Ezra 1. So Ezra 1 will be uh, next Sunday and very excited about that. But before we jump into a new series next week, I wanted to take a week to talk about communion or the Lord's Supper together. I want to talk about it for, for multiple reasons. Uh, one is, you're, you're probably aware of this, we we take the Lord's Supper together uh, roughly about once a month. We're actually going to be increasing the frequency of that for, for the next several months. But, but uh, you know, while, while we take it every month, it, it doesn't mean it's always clear to us and it's always understood, well, why is it that we take this? Why do we as a church take the Lord's Supper together every month? And, and it can be one of those things that we just assume we all know why we do this and what it's meant to be in our life. So I, I want to make sure we don't just assume that we know what it's for. But it's, it's, it's a sacrament, or it's a means of grace, it's a, it's, a, it's a tangible picture of something God has done in his people that he has given specifically to the church to, to do through the generations, that, that, that this is something given to churches to, to receive together. I mean, he's given a lot of things for, for every Christian to do, right? So he's given prayer, and, and so churches can pray together, but every individual Christian can pray, and they can pray together, they can pray as a family, they can pray individually, that prayer is something that he's given you know, sort of, to sort of individuals to give, groups of Christians to give, but, but he has given this specifically to churches 
to receive together. And so it's just helpful to know what it is that what we're doing and why we are participating in it. And I have a concern for the church, not, not living hope in, in particular, but, but the church broadly. And it's a, it's a concern that's been born out of my own experience and the experience of many who I've talked to over the years, that this is something we do. It's something we have an understanding of, of why we do it. Like we, we, we know sort of what it's about and we, we know what it pictures, but, but it's something that I at least and many others I know of haven't fully appreciated and have at times just taken for granted what, what this means of grace is meant to do in our life and, so, and in my life. And so it can often be something that the church does but, but it, we don't lean into it as a transforming means of grace that I believe it is meant to be, something that we just, that we, that we love to participate in and something that we, we love and look forward to whenever we can do it because of the way it's meant to operate in our lives. So I think there's a certain irony often with the Lord's Supper in that it, it's, it's, this, it's meant to help us remember what Jesus has done for us. It's, it's done to help us not take for granted what Jesus has done for us and fully appreciate what he has done for us, and not grow overly familiar with what he's done, and yet it can so be so often something we ourselves just grow familiar with and do sometimes out of routine. And so I want to talk about it this morning so we can freshly see it and anticipate it, so we can look forward to it and look for it and experience this meal together as a means of grace in the life of our church and in our lives individually. The Lord's Supper is a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It represents his body being broken for us and his blood being poured out for us to restore us to right relationship with God. But it's the, it's the type of picture that's not just meant to picture something. It, it's meant to serve us in a particular way. Right? Sometimes pictures are taken to, to record an event. Right? We take a picture to sort of record in history something that happened. And there's an element where that is true of the Lord's Supper, that it sort of records in history what he has done. But, but I believe it's a picture that's meant to do far more than just sort of, sort of mark a historic moment in what Christ has done. But I think it's meant to serve us as a picture in a much different way. And I, and I compare it more to sort of how one would view sort of a wedding photo in their home or, you know, I guess anymore on their phone or on their nightstand or whatever you'd keep a wedding photo, that, that, that a wedding photo is meant to, between two people who, who love each other, is meant to do far more than record the event and just sort of say, okay, factually, here's what happened. We got married on such and such a date to such and such a person. Here was the officiant involved. Here were the people, you know, that were involved. But it's meant to, to actually stir up something in your heart. It's meant to remind the it's meant to remind the two people of, of the love that they share, of the covenant that may, they made, of the, the promise that they made to one another, the vows that, that they took before one another and before witnesses and before the Lord. It, it's meant to stir up affection when they think of that day together, that it's not just sort of something that happened in history, but it's, but it's, it's this day that we share together and it began us on this relationship together. And so it's, it's meant to record more than a moment in time. It's meant to, to just stir up all that, that goes with that relationship. And so it's meant to do more than just communicate facts and putting that picture out, but it's, or, or just sort of this event occurred, but it's meant to have an effect as you look at a picture like that. And I think that's much more what the Lord's Supper is meant to do. It's a, it's a portrait we see of what Christ has done, but it is meant to have an effect. So let's look at, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to read verses 23 through 26. 
It says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was, a betra- the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we are proclaiming something. We are proclaiming this picture of what Christ has done. And so I just want to look at what does this picture proclaim? So this morning, we're gonna, the, the message is going to be given in a little bit different way this morning. Rather than sort of, I normally have like three points, I want to look at eight benefits of, of receiving the Lord's Supper together, eight sort of pictures that we see within the, the bigger picture of what, of, what, of what He has done for us and, and what we celebrate together. And so I'm going to try to be quick with all eight. So if you were at our new members class yesterday, I had like a two-page outline that I turned into three hours. I'm hoping this does not turn into that. Um, but but, but these eight ways that I think the Lord's Supper is, is meant to, to stir us up and sort of eight effects that it's meant to have. So I want to look at it much more than sort of more the way we probably typically would think of it as sort of what are all the theological things that this is saying, though we certainly want to be theological in what we're doing, but much more of a, what are eight ways that we can look at it and, and sort of be freshly stirred up by what the Lord's Supper is meant to do in our life. So the first thing, I want to look at is Christ's presence is present. Christ's presence is present. So in verse 25, it says this, this is my body. Now this is a quotation from when Jesus is giving the first Lord's Supper together from the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is what he says as, he, as he's breaking the bread. He says, this bread is my body. And he calls his disciples to do this meal in memory of him, picturing him. Now, if you know anything about that phrase, this is my body, you probably know there are volumes and volumes of theological debate about what that phrase means. What does it mean that this is the body of Christ? And if you know very little about church history, you probably know enough to know there have been lots of fights in church history. In fact, probably the majority of fights in church history has been about what does this phrase mean that this is my body? So I want to say what what Scripture says this means, but but I want to recognize this is really... To, to answer this fully, to answer this with depth, to answer this in a way that's going to just answer each question we have. I mean, really, we could spend weeks and weeks, much less part, you know, part one of eight of a sermon. Um, so I recognize this is, this is going to be brief, um, but, but I want to be clear about what it means. But, but if, if more discussion on this would be helpful, if you're like, well, I'd love to know more about why we believe what we believe about this phrase, that, you know, I, I want to have more of a technical understanding of sort of why we believe this and not this, that I would love to talk with you more about it, that I don't want to dismiss any questions with my brevity this morning. Um, and so if this is something you are wrestling with or something I say begins to be something that you wrestle with, I would love to talk with you more about that. And I don't intend to sort of, because it is a brief point, to sort of just be dismissive of, of the real theology that we need to have with it and the, the, the real significance of this point in church history. But, but Roman Catholic theology teaches this idea of transubstantiation. I need a drink. I don't know. Okay. Um, can somebody get me a glass of water? Would that be? I don't know who. Um, thank you, Alex. Um, 
So transubstantiation, and so if you, that's a big word, probably most of you have heard this word, and we're like, oh yeah, that has something, right? So what that means is, is what the Roman Catholic teach, faith would teach, is that when a priest pronounces blessing on sort of the bread and on the juice, thank you. I don't know what happened to Alex, but Eric is a true friend. Um, I, I didn't get any yet, so we're, we're still good. Now I feel bad. Alex is also a true friend. Um, Eric is just a better friend, um, the way. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, that was an awkward moment. Okay, so Catholics, they believe, um, and they would teach, Roman Catholic theology teaches this idea of transubstantiation. And what that means is, is really when a priest pronounces blessing on the bread and on the juice, and sort of when a, when a priest pronounces blessing and it is received by the person, that the bread and the juice literally become the body of Christ. So there, there's mystery in that, obviously, but basically they believe that it's this literal body and blood of Jesus Christ that is being consumed, that in this mysterious way that it changes its chemical compound to become this, this sup- and this something supernatural happens in that way. Luther, uh, who, who obviously broke from the Catholic Church and, and taught something very different, he taught something called consubstantiation, which is that the body in Christ is sort of in and around and sort of in and around and under the elements. And sort of the, the way you could describe what Luther would have taught is that sort of, it's sort of like water is, is in a sponge, that it's, it doesn't become the body of Christ, but it's, it's just sort of so related to the body of Christ. But there's something physical that is taking place. So it doesn't literally become the body of Christ, but in a sense, he's also physically there himself. He, he is sort of a part of the elements of what we take. And that would be the, the Lutheran view today. So Catholics would still, that would still be Roman Catholic theology. Lutherans and others would still believe that. But, but most people today would not fit into either one of those camps. And, and they would say, and this is where we, we would believe, is that the presence of Christ is much more spiritual than it is physical. That for, for, so I would say there's a lot of reasons. And again, I'm happy to talk with anybody about sort of what they are. I, this is the view of scripture that, that I think this is the view that most rep- accurately represents scripture. But when he's talking about my body being broken, he's not talking about physically or, or sort of chemically, this is my body, but that the sort of that you're physically taking. So I don't think we're eating a physical manifestation of Christ, but we are eating in a sense, a real manifestation of Christ. That this is something, though it's not physically, though so something hasn't changed its chemical compound, Christ is present in the meal. And so just because it's spiritual, that doesn't sort of mean it's just ceremonial or it's just, well, it's not physical, so it must not be real. No, there, there's, a, there's a spiritual presence of Christ with us in the meal. And so we need to recognize that, that the meal we are taking is, is a real thing. It, Christ is with us in this meal, and he's with us in a unique way as we take the Lord's Supper together. And so there's a there's a, like he, Christ is always with us, right? God, God is always with all his people all the time. God is omnipresent, but there's a, there's, there's a difference in his presence in his meal. There's a, a tangibleness, if you will, in his presence in this meal. That his presence, though it's, though it's spiritual, his presence is real. And so this is, there, there's a holiness to this meal. And what we, what we take is, is not sort of, this isn't mere symbolism, 
or sort of mere routine, or it sort of well, it points to this, this, it points to Jesus and sort of represents, no, the, the, Christ is present in the meal. And it is a reminder that we share in Christ's death. We actually share in the death Christ actually died. And we actually share in the benefits that Christ secured for his people. And so we share in the presence of Christ because, as his people because he is with us, because he died for us. And so we share the benefits of him dying for us and being raised to life for us. And that is he is, he is with his people. And so he doesn't, I just need to be clear, the, the, the elements don't need to physically change for us to, to, for the effect of this meal to be very real and for his presence to be with us as his people. And in a sense, he wouldn't, be more, he wouldn't be more here with us if he was standing in the back of the room than he's here with us as we take this meal, that he is with his people as we participate in t- receiving the Lord's Supper together. And so just to recognize that though he is always with us, he is with us in a particular way and in a significant way as we Take this meal together. Second thing I think we want to see in this meal is, is Christ's fulfillment for us is pictured. Christ's fulfillment for us is pictured. So he, so he is present with us, and it also pictures his fulfillment for us. The night when the first meal was eaten, the night before Christ died, when he and his disciples were, were gathered together, they were celebrating the Passover meal. And so the Passover meal was when God's people would gather together and they would remember and they would celebrate the original Passover. So the original Passover was when the people were released from slavery. They were released as slaves from Egypt. They were freed from bondage. Why were they freed from bondage? Why did sort of God re- sort of release them and, and others were not released? Others, their enemies were destroyed. Why was one released and the other destroyed? Because they had the blood of another covering them. And so because of the blood of another, the people were released from slavery because God would look at that blood, the blood of a sacrifice offered for them and on their behalf, and they, would, they, were, they were passed over what they would have deserved in their sin, and God rescued them instead. But not only were they rescued from slavery, not only were they freed from slavery, God, God destroyed their enemy that they could not destroy on their own, and God was in the process of bringing them to their promised land. And this is a fulfillment. What Jesus Christ has done is a fulfillment of what all the Passover represents, all the Passover pointed to of, of a people being released from slavery, replaced from bondage, their great enemy being destroyed and being brought to the promised land. That is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it all pointed to Jesus Christ, who was the Passover lamb, the lamb slain for the sins of the people, for the freedom of the people. He is the one slain and he is the one who all who trust in his blood are saved from the wrath of God. All who trust in his blood see their enemy destroyed, and all who trust in his blood are brought to the promised land. And so we need to make no mistake, this pictures the fulfillment of Christ, but not just that Christ fulfilled something, but Christ fulfilled this for us. He's not just the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. He is the one who fulfilled all God required, who fulfilled all we need, who fulfilled all the Old Testament pointed to, and he is the one that will bring us to the promised land with him. So this meal is pictures and reminds us of the Lamb of God who was slain for us. This meal is just a reminder that all we need, all that we need is supplied in Jesus Christ. Third thing that we see Third thing that we see is that Christ's grace is offered. Christ's 
grace is offered. The word Eucharist you may be familiar. So oftentimes, in, uh, in certain circles, they would, they would call this meal the, the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is from the Greek word charis, which means grace. So the, the word literally means, which means grace. And the idea behind that word, and I really like that word, is it's not just that it's sort of, it's not just sort of that, that it pictures the grace that would be offered to you in Jesus Christ one time as an event, but it's that every time we take this meal together, it is a means of active grace into our lives. That it's not just sort of this one-time event of where one point in history grace was offered, but every time we receive it, we are, we are being offered grace by God. Because this meal reminds us of the, of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, of our, our need of Jesus Christ, of our dependence on Jesus Christ, and our confidence in Jesus Christ, that His grace that is what we need, that we have all we need in His grace. And so this meal is, is, a, is a means of grace to us, that, we, that He grows us as we take this meal together, that He offers us more of His grace as we, as we receive this meal together. That this is not a meal that sort of just we, we, we take and then we are left the same way we were, but we are transformed more into, like, into his likeness as we receive this together. See, if you will, there, there's, there's, an, there's a power and effect when we, when we receive this meal together. When we receive it in faith, we, we are changed. I want to be clear, not necessarily dramatically every single time, but definitively over time, as we receive this meal, as we receive its benefits, we are transformed more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so I would put it in the category, of, in the same way you would say, boy, reading the Bible and prayer and fellowship is an active means of grace. It is obvious how we sort of grow over time as we receive these things. In the same way, the Lord's Supper, we, we are transformed over time as we receive the Lord's Supper together. But in the same way, it's not just, okay, I don't just get changed by sort of opening the Bible and sort of mindlessly going through it. I don't just sort of, I don't, I don't receive grace just by, you know, sort of mindlessly doing something. It's as we engage our minds, as we step in with faith, looking to see what the Lord, what the Lord is saying through his word that we begin to be transformed over time. In the same way, we must, we've got to engage mentally with what's going on. We need to have faith as we engage in the Lord's Supper together. But every time we do, he is offering us a fresh reminder and a, and a fresh means of his grace for us. The Heidelberg Catechism, which is one of the catechisms or sort of ways that people would sort of, the, how, how people would remember theology through the years and sort of the way that they would be taught theology in home and sort of what do we believe about the Bible and about who Jesus is. Heidelberg Catechism is one of the more famous ones in church history. And one of the questions I want to share, I think it just summarizes this point so well. And the catechism always goes question and then answer, so it asks a question and it answers. It says, the question is, how does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts? It says this, in this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup in remembrance of him. With this command, he gives these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Secondly, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord, as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life 
with his crucified body and shed blood. Uh, one of the things I love about th that answer is it's just as real, just as tangible, just as literal as these elements are. So confident are we in what Christ has done for us. All right, fourth picture that we see, or fourth effect that we see, is this fourth thing we see is the effect of humility. The effect of humility. Probably obvious, the Lord's, the, the Lord's Supper represents, and this table represents the humility of Christ. He who humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross for us, the God of all glory, dying the place of sinners in the ultimate act of suffering and humility. So, so based on that alone, the Lord's Supper is, is, and the Lord's table is just a humbling place. But I want to recognize that it's not just a call to sort of look at his humility, and it's not just picturing his humility. This table is, is a humbling place for us because there is no room for arrogance as we approach this table. We are recipients of divine mercy. We, we are at that table because of the blood of another we are at this table because of God's love, because of God's mercy, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only reason we can participate in all this means. So our sin and our brokenness and our shame and our guilt require nothing less than the Son of God to become a man and to take his place and die for us. And as we think about that, that should just be a humbling experience be one that causes us to confess our sins to Christ and cling to nothing inside of us, to, cl to, to claim nothing other than what Christ has done for us. It's, as we receive, as we receive this together, it, 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 by, by taking it, you are declaring to yourself, you're reminding your own soul, but you're, you're, you're declaring to sort of everyone else in the room, everybody else who is, who is around when we take this together, like, I've got nothing to claim on my own. I, I am here solely because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. I, I bring nothing to this table, only what Jesus Christ has done for me. But it's, but it's humbling in another way, too, in, the, in that this table is it's, it's just the great equalizer because there's no room for superiority at this table. Like There's no room for thinking, you know, that brother who's coming up, you know, I'm, I'm a little better off than he is. Like, I'm, I'm a little better than he is. He, he needs this a little bit more than I do. It, it just breaks us of all that. It breaks, it, this, this table makes sure we are all broken to the same amount, to the same degree, that no one who comes up here has, has anything to offer. So if we, if we come and, and we, we have some sort of subtle superiority it's representative of the fact that we don't fully get what this table represents and what this table means because there is, there, there, there is no place at this table for this pharisaical attitude of, God, thank you that I'm not like that man. But it's a declaration of, I simply need the mercy of God. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is what that table declares for everyone who takes it. This is the, as we come to the table, it's the place where human pride just gets, it just goes to die. It gets completely uprooted. You know, one of my, just I think one of my besetting sins is that I can just, I can, I can be self-sufficient. And what I mean by that is I can, I can know all the right theology, but very functionally in my life, I can 
really rely on myself. I can rely on what I do. I can, you know, I can try to be strong in myself and, and not be weak, you know, sort of just be, be, you know, be reliant on me for my own growth and for the way I care for my family. I can, I can just sinfully be reliant on me rather than on the grace of God. This, this table is just a humbling thing because there's, there's no room for self Adam, you bring nothing to the table. You, you have no sufficiency on your, in and of yourself. You have, you have nothing to sort of think you can rely on you for what God is calling you to do. You, have, you can't rely on you for, for right relationship with Him. But while it's humbling, there's also this wonderful just truth and, and, and wonderful peace. In the, and that's a good thing that we are humbled because here's who God gives grace to. God gives grace to the humble. So as we, as we come to the table in humility, that He pours out more of His grace on our lives. Fifth thing we see is this. We see a picture of humility. We also see the effect of confidence. So we are both humbled, but then we should have, there should be more confidence in our life because of receiving this table. So here's the reality. We can only come, hum, we can only come humbly, but we can come, and we should come, and we must come, and we should come confidently because Jesus Christ has actually paid our ransom. He actually has done all that is needed because of our sin. He has he has earned our right to be at the table. So we belong at the table, not because we bring something on our own, but because Jesus Christ has paid our ransom, because he has died for me and he was raised to new life. I belong at the table. God loves you and he sent his son for you. And he doesn't want you to forget that. He doesn't want to just tell you one time, hey, I love you and I sent my son for you. He wants to remind you over and over and over again. So he built this reminder into his church to sort of say, because he wants you to know, keep coming to me. We approach the throne of grace with boldness because we believe what God has says, that, he, that our, son, our sin runs deep, but his grace is stronger. So we, we recognize that Satan is strong, but Jesus is stronger. We, we just recognize that we, have, we are called to come. We can do this. We, can, we are commanded to do this because it is a reminder to us that the grace of Jesus Christ has sort of has paid our way for, for us to come and participate at the table, and he wants us at the table. He invites us at the table. Nothing should hold us back if we are believers from coming to this table. And we should recognize this table is only for repentant sinners. This table is only for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So if there's, if there's a sin that you're, that you're aware of, you're, you're called to repent of that sin. If you're in relational discord with, with a brother or sister, he calls us to first repent of that and then be reconciled out of the overflow of God's reconciling love for us. So there, there's a reality of we're reconciled with other brothers and sisters. We're walking in repentance. But if, but if you're walking in repentance... Not if you've had a perfect week, not if you've, you know, just seven out of seven for quiet times this week, not if you don't have doubts, not if you don't have fears, not if you don't have struggles, not if you don't have besetting sins in your life, but if you are walking in right relationship with Jesus Christ, then nothing is holding you back from this table. And this must affect the mentality that we have with our lives, that we aren't simply allowed to come to the table. We are invited to come to the table. We are desired to be at the table time and time again. And so if you're someone who just routinely sort of just feels unworthy because of the latest sin in your life and just fe regularly feels like, boy, I, I know what, what it says, but man, it, my sin just keeps holding me back. I mean, 
how he says, of course, none of us are worthy to be there. That's, it's, it's only on the worthiness of Jesus Christ that we come. But if you have a conscience that just is, is always more aware of, of your latest sin and, and why you think in your mind that that latest sin should sort of hold you back, either from participating in the Lord's Supper or just from fully, you know, sort of fully being in right relationship with God, there's sort of this distance between you and God because of your latest sin. Listen, the Lord's Supper must inform our conscience that Christ has paid for every one of our sins and he invites every repentant sinner to not just come, but to come and not hold back, to come with confidence, to know that you're not just invited to the table, you're not just, you're not just allowed at the table, you are desired to be at the table. Jesus Christ himself invites you to come to the table as, as, a, as a reminder that, that His grace in your life is so much bigger than whatever it is that's ringing in your ear at the moment. Sixth picture we see is we have the, this is a picture of community. A picture of community. So it's called the Lord's Supper. We talked about it before. It went up. It's called the Eucharist. But, but another name for it that is often called is communion, right? So that's probably, you know, and we'll use them interchangeably, Lord's Supper or communion. And communion has to do a lot with, with what it sounds like, that it, communion, right, community and together, this, this sort of community together. And the reality is that this is a family meal. And not just in the technical way, well, okay, this is a sacrament of the church, and the church is, you know, sort of the, the, the people of God. And it's not just in this sort of technical way, but, but in every way that this is meant to be sort of, this is the church family meal that we do together, that this is our family meal, that this is a reminder that those who come and take, these are my brothers and sisters that I'm in partnership with, that they are all bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's one of the reasons why when we're in conflict with one that we're called to resolve the conflict before we go to the table. But this is a meal for those whom God has called together. This isn't just sort of a meal for a bunch of random individuals who sort of, who sort of arrive at the same time and space on any given Sunday, but this is no... God is building a people, he is building a family, and this is what we take together. And so as everybody who, who comes to the table, we, we may know them well, we may not know them at all, we might really like them, we might not like them at all, we might have a lot in common with them, we might have nothing in common other than Jesus with them. But we were bought with the same precious blood of Christ, we are on the same mission, and we are part of the same family together. And it's a reminder that as we take this meal, that God isn't just sort of my identity and who I am. It's not just sort of I'm an individual saved by the grace of God, but, but, but it reminds us, but I am one who has been called out of my life of just being an individual, but into the community of God and that I'm part of God's family, that I'm part of God's community and what he is building. It reminds me that I'm not just me individual, but I'm part of something corporate so much bigger than myself. And we share this same meal not just as a church family living hope several Sundays a month, but we, we share this meal with our broader family together. That yet we take it as living hope because we have the same Jesus, but, but, but all churches have the same head and the same Savior. So we share this meal with our, our, with our family of churches. We share this meal with the church up the road. We share this meal with the church around the, church around the globe. We are one church, and this meal gives us sort of a picture of that there's a church universal, there's a church bigger than living hope that we share this together with, that there is one church through all of history sharing one meal. 
And we share this meal with believers of every age, of every race, of every tribe, of every tongue, that we are all linked together. So on any Sunday morning, we have different roles in the church, we have different titles in the church, we have different stories of God saving grace in our lives, but we share one meal together. I have no more right to be here than anybody else does. My, my daughter is 13, I've been, I, I've, been a, I've been a Christian longer than she's been alive, but we share the same meal because we've been offered the same grace by the same Savior. And Lord willing, well after I'm gone, my great-grandkids will be part of the same community, sharing the same meal, generation after generation after generation, and churches that are different around the globe, different cultures, different practices, different sort of things that they are passionate about, different strengths, different weaknesses than ours, are sharing in one meal because we are one community that God has called together. This morning, you probably noticed that communion's up front, and we're going to, after, after the message, we're going to receive communion together. Did up front, we're, we're going to, and we'll explain this more when we do it, but we're going we're to come forward to receive communion together, and one of the, the effects of that is going to be we're going to see the people coming up to receive it. We're going to see physically those who are around us who we share community with, and well, because this isn't a better way, this isn't like a more biblical way of doing it, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, but but, but I think when we, when we see the people coming up, and I would encourage you to, to look around at who's coming to the table and who's joining you at the table and just to remind yourself, this is, our, this is our family meal. And whatever struggles they have, whatever weaknesses they have, whatever differences we have, whatever generation they're in, however long they've been here, however long they've been a Christian, we are one family bought with the same precious blood of Jesus Christ from new Christians to seasoned saints, to those struggling in the faith, to those in trial, to those in plenty. We're all equal and all equally belong at the table. Seventh picture we see is we see a picture of the feast. A picture of the feast. So in the book of Matthew, when he is giving the instruction for the Lord's Supper for the first time, he says this, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine, until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he is talking about a day that he won't, he won't drink of this again until there's a day coming. And what are we talking about? He's going he's to be drinking wine around a common table when all his family's there together. And so he's talking about, okay, I'm not going to drink it again until that day, until we're all together. We're all sort of relaxed and reclined at table together one family around the same table. What's he talking about? He's talking about there's going to be a day that this day points to where there's going to be a feast and there's going to be a celebration. And the celebration is going to be better than Christmas or better than Thanksgiving or birthdays or going to the Golden Corral or whatever meal it is that to you screams celebration. I'm the only one that says Golden Corral, but right, whatever, whatever meal it is that you're just like, man, that's, that's the meal, that's the feast, that's the celebration. This, this is a picture of that feast is coming. And so we, we call the Lord's Supper a meal, and you, you might think, you know, Adam, it's, it's not that big of a meal, right? It, I mean, it's a little bread, it's a little juice, tiny, tiny little bit amount of food. And, well, that's true physically. Spiritually, it points to, to the provision that he provides for all we need in Jesus Christ. It, it points to the abundance in Jesus Christ that 
that, that, that there's, a, there's an abundance and there's a fullness and all we need and what he has spiritually done for us. But, but it also paints a picture of physically, just as physically there is bread and physically there is juice, physically there is a feast and a celebration coming with food flowing. And man, for a lot of food-related reasons, I'm, I'm excited about that, that feast someday that I don't know what it's going to be like to eat with no effect of the fall and all the best flavors, calorie-free and all that kind of stuff. But like, whatever that's going to be like as a feast. But, but it's so much bigger picture than just even a meal we're going to take together. It, it's symbolic of it, there's a homecoming that, that's awaiting for all God's people, for all time, to be together. And so what's feasting together in heaven represent? It represents enjoying one another and celebrating together that the war is over and the pain is over and the trials are over and the questions are over and the doubts are over and the discord is over and the division is over. And for all time, as one people, we all fully enjoy the fruit of what Christ has secured for us in his victory over sin and over Satan. And so this is a deposit and a reminder of the coming day that we really sh will share with, that there is a feast with one another. And as we celebrate sort of a foretaste of that today, there is a day coming where the celebration won't just be a foretaste. It will be for all eternity. And just as surely as we taste the juice, just as physically as we can taste the juice, just as surely this celebration will be. The eighth effect, the eighth picture is that of an invitation. So if you are a Christian, I hope you've heard this, then you should come and you should eat freely. You should eat with confidence and be refreshed in what Christ has done for us and what he has accomplished for us, that you are invited to the table and you are invited to once again draw near to him as he pours out his grace in your life. But for those who have never given their life and their heart to Jesus Christ, know this, that this is, this is a family meal. This meal is only for those who have given their life to Jesus Christ. And historically, I would even say it's actually been for those who have been, who have been baptized as believers because baptism sort of represents sort of the ushering into God's family and the Lord's Supper represents sort of the, the ongoing part of how we're got part of God's family together. So I recognize there's going to probably even be some kids here who don't participate in the Lord's Supper because because their parents are walking with them and still not sure, okay, do we, where are we at confidence-wise of just being able to participate in this meal or not? And so I think sometimes it's, it's, it's hard, if you're not a believer, or maybe you're just somebody who, who's younger here, or, or you're somebody who's exploring what that means, or you're just younger here and like you, you don't get to quite participate in what this is yet. It's very easy because you don't participate. I think it'd be very easy to see this as like, well, I guess I'm not really supposed to be part of this. Or it's easy to say, okay, wait, because I don't participate yet, and because this meal isn't for me yet, that sort of the vibe you might read is sort of stay away. And I want to be clear, it's important to not take the meal wrongly because, listen, it's a serious meal. It's one of the visible ways we, we recognize who's in the family and who isn't in the family. And to take this meal is, is a serious thing because the God who gives it to us is serious about it. But, but if, if, if any part of you is exploring the Christian faith, you're, you're, you're wondering more what it's about. You've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, and you see this table as a sign to, I guess God must want me to stay away. And I just want to say, you don't see this table rightly. 
Because this table is an invitation not to go away, but to come to Jesus Christ and to respond to his gracious call on your life. He came to earth. He lived a sinless, perfect life. He died a sinner's death. And he saves anyone who places their trust in him. And all sin is dealt with and all shame has been defeated. All the lies are overcome by the truth. All darkness has been transformed by the light. And so this picture is a reminder of the God who invites you to come, who desires for you to come, who did all that is possible and necessary for you to come to him. This is sort of, this table should just be a, a lit up display of the invitation God is giving you to be in right relationship with him. That he he offers, that this table is a, is, is, is a picture of his broken body and his blood poured out for sins. And he, he is offering you his, his broken body, his blood's poured out for you, and he is, he, he is offering you that in exchange for all your sin and for all your shame and for all your, all your brokenness, for all your fears, for all the lies you've ever believed, for all the unbelief, for all the doubts, for all the fear, he is offering you his righteousness in exchange for all these things. And so you are invited into a right relationship with Jesus Christ because of all this table represents. So in just a moment, we're going to take communion together as a church. And if you are not a Christian yet, I would not ask you just to sort of feel like, okay, the posture is, is sort of stay away. But to hear God is inviting you to come to him and to know there is rejoicing in heaven if you would one day join the line of people coming to the table. So communion is the place where we experience God's presence, where we know his fulfillment for all we need. It is a means of grace in our life. It is both humbling and is the means of tremendous confidence. It's a reminder that we are one church family bought with the same precious blood of Jesus Christ and it's an invitation, and it helps us to look forward to the great feast. So in just a moment, now Ben, if you want to come up, Ben's going to, can you, he's going to, we're going to sing a song together. Uh, I'm going to encourage you, while we're singing, if you have children and children, go ahead and get them. We would love to take this as, as a church family together. So if you have kids, if you want to bring them, that way the children's ministry teachers can kind of come and participate. So as we're singing the first song, um, go ahead and get your kids, uh, and then we're going, I'm going to come back up and lead and receiving the Lord's Supper together.